everybody and welcome back to Murder Moms. I'm Maggie and this is Janessa. Hello. So Janessa, how uh, how have you been? <laughs> I had COVID. I laughed because I already knew how this was going to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm honestly really mad that I got, got it at all. Oh, I am too. So I'm literally the only person at my job that still wears a mask because mm-hmm. we live in Florida and they're not mandated and mm-hmm. it's not real. People got bored and so it's over with. Yeah. Uh, I wash my hands so much that I literally leave the sink on behind the bar mm-hmm. running hot water so that way I don't have to wait for the water to get hot. Mm-hmm. I just turn it up and wash my hands. I have hand sanitizer everywhere and I'm the one who caught it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one other person at my job that also had it but we do not work together at all. She literally works only on my two days off. Oh, wow. So I think it's just coincidence that she also got it. She doesn't wear a mask and she goes out. But yeah, it was definitely not fun. It's probably the weirdest sickness that I've ever had. I was so convinced that I could not have it because I'm so cautious, like we wipe down groceries when they come in the house kind of cautious, that I convinced myself that I didn't have it. I was like, it's hay fever. Yeah. I had a fever for maybe three hours one day, and it was 99.5. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really get high. And then I really just had, like, congestion, and I had uh, night sweats two nights in a row, and I was like, oh, you know, hay fever, whatever, and I had Javon take my vitals for me and all my vitals were normal I was fine Mm -hmm. so I was convinced for four days and it kept getting worse and worse I left early one night because my head hurt so bad Monday night I was waiting for Javon to come back with food because we had done leftover night and gave the kids leftovers and he went to go get something for us after they went to bed and I was like you know what I haven't eaten anything today I should really eat something Mm -hmm. I haven't been hungry. I know I need to eat. So I went and got like a little, you know, individual bag of barbecue chips. Yeah. And I opened it and I took one out and I put it in my mouth and I could feel the salt, but I couldn't taste anything. Mm -hmm. And then I tasted a little bit and I was like, okay, am I really tasting this? Or does my brain know what this is supposed to taste like? And filling it in. So I put my entire nose face area into that bag and inhaled so hard and nothing nothing I freaked the fuck out John got home and I was like I can't taste these chips and he was like well you know that happens sometimes with hay fever because your sinuses are so backed up yeah can you taste anything and I was like I don't know so I tried the fries I couldn't taste the fries I could taste the spicy ketchup though so I was like okay you got water crunk and so that kind of calmed me down enough to where I was like all right I'm fine but when I went to bed I literally went up against the wall so that way, I was only breathing on the wall. Yeah. Because I was so, so worried still. And um, the next day, I was worse. And that was John's clinical day. So he's gone from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I called my doctor's office. And I was like, hey, this is what's going on. And they are like, all right, why don't you come and get tested? So I drove out there. I didn't even have to get out of the van. I had all the kids in the car. I had a mask on. I was so prepared. I've seen so many videos where they, like, shove that motherfucker way in there, have right? Have you not had a COVID test? I did have a COVID test. Do you want to know what happened with my COVID test? I have literally stuck my finger in my own nose farther. <laughs> okay. I te- to the point where I'll, I'll, I'll show you, I'll send a screenshot. We can do a screenshot with it. I texted Javon, 
and I was like, I am 75% sure that this test is going to come back negative because that lady barely put it in my nose. Oh, okay. Like, okay. it literally tickled my nostril, and that was it. Oh, okay. I was convinced she just, like, didn't give a shit and, you know, whatever. Nope, positive. So that was fun, and then I spent the next week in my room by myself. I'm very lucky that my husband was a medic in the army and is in a nursing program because he was able to help me more than I think other people would have. Yeah. I also have my friend Michelle who has been doing nothing but working COVID for the past year. She's been doing traveling nursing. Yeah. And she brought me some medicine as well. Um, And you brought me medicine. And I sent you a blanket. That blanket is amazing. (laughs) Um, So, in any case, how uh, how have you been? (laughs) Fine. Time is hard. The time changed has broken my brain. All right, so now that we're all good and sad, um, so this week we're going to go back in time to the 1940s, and we're going to be talking about the acid bath murderer. Are you familiar? I don't think I'm as familiar as I need to be. Okay, so you haven't watched Murder Maps on Netflix? John George Haig was born July 24th, 1909 in Lincolnshire, England. His parents were members of the Plymouth Brethren, an ultra-religious Protestant sect. They were anti-modern and advocated for very austere lifestyles. And his parents were strict, and his father actually built a 10-foot fence around their garden to keep out the outside world. John's only friends were a few pets, and he developed a hatred of dirt. References... (laughs) I'm sorry, all I could think of was Anakin being like, I hate sand. It's coarse and it gets everywhere. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry, go on. References to the Lord were frequently used to remind him that he was always being watched and Bible stories were the only form of entertainment. Uh, Yeah, I thought you might have that opinion. But again, they they were ultra religious... Like, I know. I just hate religion being used to, like, control people. I know. Haig Sr. had a blue blemish on his head and told John that it was from sinning in his youth, which made John terrified of developing a, quote, sign of the devil by committing any misbehavior. He was told his mother had no mark because she was an angel. Okay, what's with your face? That's just so fucked up. Like, I tell little white lies to my kids, you know, like, we call moles beauty marks, you know, mm-hmm. they make you beautiful, stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with using fear <laughs> to control my children's behaviors. I would much rather explain a situation to them so mm-hmm. they understand why something is dangerous or why something isn't okay than just resort to being like, if you do this, you'll have a horrible mark. <laughs> I mean, like, no lie to an extent I use fear with Ariel for certain things because she is aware of what the hospital is and what it's like to spend time there. Mm-hmm. He's saying that if you don't follow the Lord, you will get blemishes on your skin to show that you have sinned. That's that's different. Yeah. You know, I don't I, I use the hospital a lot, but I don't use it on anything that it would not be a consequence to. Yeah. Like, outlets and stuff like that. You know, don't touch the outlet, you can get electrocuted. And when we have to go to the hospital. Yeah. Higg Sr. had this weird blue blemish. I couldn't find any pictures of him, otherwise I would include it to see what this blemish looked like. 
Um, I don't know if it's like one of those wine colored birthmarks mm-hmm. or if it's like one of the, like he hit himself and the bruise never went away. I don't okay. know what kind of situation it was. But uh, John's mother had no mark because she was an angel. John was always on the lookout for this blemish on other people, and he would be awake at night worrying that it appeared on him. He would just lie awake at night stressing about this. And I have a picture of wee baby John Haig in his school uniform. What year is it? 1920? Probably. He was born in 1909. He's probably about okay. 10 years old here. He's got on, like, some some flashy Oxfords, knee-high socks, and his shorts go down to his knees, so they almost touch the socks. <laughs> Gloves. What is that a riding crop? We've got a riding crop, a full jacket and tie, and a hat on. A jockey. He looks like a jockey. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. When I saw his little riding crop, I did think of the smelting stick that Dursley got, though. <laughs> Harry Potter. But his little face, though. He's got a cute little face. He does have a cute little face. He's about 10 in this picture, I would say. I feel bad that his father made him so fearful of life. Mm, Yes. So, John was actually very smart, and he ended up winning scholarships to private schools. And in doing so, he entered a religious world that was more structured and reliant on authority than he had been raised in. So, what that means is... Yeah, the Plymouth Brethren, which is the religion he was raised in, they were really, like, cultish is probably the best way I could put it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Whereas he went, he ended up going to, like, a structured private school. Yeah. So there was, like, a principal and teachers and, like, here's your chain of command kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's what it means when it's, like, he, the the world that he entered was more structured and reliant on authority. There was there were more people there than just like his father who is the head of the household be all end all. Yeah. And it was less like I am a devil and your mother is an angel and it's probably more regulated. It's more regulated exactly. And from the ages of 10 to 16, he lived in two different worlds with fundamentally opposing beliefs, his home life and his school life. Okay. And he participated in things that he'd been raised to believe were sinful, which was his school life. He became very proficient at playing piano, and he would go to classical piano concerts and things like that. He, so he lived in these, these two different worlds. He participated in things that he'd been raised to believe were sinful, and his parents allowed it. So he's, This is very confusing. Yeah, so he's getting these two different messages from his formative 10 to 16 years. Yeah. A sinner's mark never appeared on him, and so he felt like he was getting away with something, because of course it's not going to appear on him, it's not a thing. Yeah. And a psychiatrist later determined that this was a sociopathic turning point for him, when he realized, like, I can get away with these things, and nothing's going to happen to me. This is why it's important to give your children real consequences and not made-up fairy tale nonsense. That's why it's important to explain things to them. Yeah. (gasps) Okay, go on. Yeah. So after leaving school at 17, Haig was apprenticed to a firm of motor engineers. He didn't last long. He lasted there for a year. It was dirty and he didn't like it. Fair. Uh, He left and worked various jobs in insurance and advertising. When he was 21, he was fired from his job when he was suspected of stealing from a cash box. 
in July 1934, 24-year-old Haig stopped attending his parents' church and married 21-year-old Betty Hammer, a woman he barely knew. She was impressed by his manners and his charm, but she did have second thoughts during their secret engagement, though she did go through with it. Haig's parents let the couple live with them, but the marriage only lasted for about four months. Haig has started forging vehicle documents and was soon caught. And in November 1934, he received 15 months in jail for fraud. Betty gave birth while he was in jail, gave the baby girl up for adoption, and left him. Holy cow! Did not see that coming. Okay. But she was like, oh, this is what you're about? Never mind. She just gave up that baby, though. Yeah. I saw somewhere, and I only saw it in one place, so I didn't, like, uh, officially include it, that they only saw each other one time, like, years later, and he told her that their marriage was never real because he was already married to someone else, which was a very weird lie. Like, the the whatever I read specifically was like, that's not true, we don't know why he said that. To make her feel bad, probably. Or whatever. Like, our, our marriage was never was never legitimate. Um, petty um, people want you to feel bad so they can feel better. Yeah. I only read that in one place, though. And so, I didn't officially include it. Um, after Betty left him, and he, while he was in jail, his conservative family and the Brethren Church ostracized him for his sin. Which shocked him. Because, oh my gosh, there's a consequence. And according to his mother, that is what affected his future outlook. Not the fact that, you know... Not the fact that he was raised in a cult. Yeah, it, not, not any of that. Oh it's the, the fact that, oh no, there was some kind of consequence. In 1936, Haig moved to London and started working as a chauffeur for William Mac McSwan, a wealthy owner of amusement arcades. I was kind of confused about what an amusement arcade was, because I know it's not like Mortal Kombat and DDR. So I looked up this picture, and it's not one of Mac's, but... Is it like... It's like little slot machines, yeah. and there it says Boat Ride and Bingo, and okay. they're also called Penny Arcades, yeah. and I've got this photo here, there's a little Coke machine in the back, and they're just like little, little penny games. Yeah. No Mortal Kombat to be found. No, no, not at <laughs> this time period. No. So, Mac and Hag became friends. They're both young guys, and they enjoy fast cars and flashy clothes and going to pubs. Mac introduced Hag to his parents, Donald, Donald and Amy McSwan, who also liked Hag. Eventually, they promoted him in the business to maintain and manage the arcade machines. Mac was sad to see him leave after a year when he decided to go into business of his own. When Heg decided to go into business mm-hmm. of his own. This is Mac. He's very dapper. Look at his little mustache. His mustache cracks me up. I have never seen hair parted so far to the side in my life, though. You have. It's just usually in front of his face. It's very far. It's all on one side. Yes. Mac is very dapper. Um... His mustache looks like... It looks like it's coming out of his nose. It does. He's got a little butt chin. Oh my gosh. Alright. Alright, Mac. Um, he's got a nice face, though. So, 
Haig's idea of branching out on his own was to pretend to be a solicitor named William Cato Adamson, and he sold fraudulent stock shares. He was discovered when someone noticed that he'd made a misspelling on his letterhead. I read various things, and one said that he misspelled the name of city. Uh, one thing said that he misspelled his name, name in quotations. Mm. He made some kind of misspelling, and that's how he was discovered. That still happens with people today, and there is spell check. I know. And for this, he received a four-year prison sentence for fraud, and he was released just after World War II started. Oh. And this is what Haig looks like. Oh, my God. That's his prison photo. I'm sorry. Can you turn that screen uh, yes, a sorry. little bit Go more? Um, this is a very real question. Was that particular mustache style in style... Uh, I believe so. Okay, good. Because it's a Hitler mustache. It's a Hitler mustache, and he looks very angry. Well, he, this is his arrest photo. That is a terrifying photo. Um, but yeah, he has a little Hitler mustache. His tie is crooked. Uh, he's in a wool coat, and his hair is... See, that hair, I don't feel like it's parted so far to the side. But it is very well cut. Yeah. You can see the comb marks in his hair. Hmm. Uh, yeah, he's very upset that he got caught. Yeah, he does not look happy. I feel like this photo is going to haunt me. Oh, just wait. Oh, great. Perfect. Continue. Yeah. So, yeah, that, um... Hmm. In 1934, while doing this four-year prison stint, Haig realized why he kept getting caught. And it was because he kept leaving people alive to report the crime. Oh, bless it. Mm. He became interested in French murderer Georges Alexander Surrett, who had disposed of his victims in 1925 by using sulfuric acid. Uh-huh. While still in prison, this is all happening while he's in prison, while still in prison, because all of this is happening while he's in prison, mm -hmm. Haig devised a similar method. He worked with sulfuric acid in the prison's tin shop and ran experiments on field mice. He found that it only took them 30 minutes to dissolve, and then he calculated how much acid and time would be needed to dissolve a grown man. He did that while in prison. Okay. Um... Why did a prisoner have access to acid? Well, he worked in a tin shop, and it's 1939. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's my best answer for you. Yeah, I got it. In 1943, he was released from prison and became an accountant with an engineering firm. He worked with a Mr. Stevens and stayed with the Stevens family, where Haig became a close... He worked with a Mr. Stevens and stayed with the Stevens family, where Haig began a close friendship with one of the daughters named Barbara. Okay. There was a 20-year age gap, but they talked about marriage, and she thought that she would become Mrs. Haig. She was unaware that Haig was not divorced from his first wife. I'm not sure that she was aware that there was a first wife. I just feel like there are definitely times where large age gaps 
don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are very many relationships with large age gaps that work out wonderfully. Mm-hmm. However, it is a very big red flag to me if somebody 20 years your senior tells you how mature you are. Mm-hmm. Because that means that they are very immature. And please be aware of the difference between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. Real quick, because I didn't do this. So, according to my calculations, because I thought he was born in 1909. Mm. He was 34. What? So, was she older? Please tell me she was older. I don't think so. Ugh. That's a child. That's a child. I'm not going to stake my life on it, mm. but I'm pretty sure... That's a child. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's how that worked, is that he was 34, and there is about a 20-year gap, so she was no... At best, depending on what time of year they were born in and what time of year this was, at best she was 16. Mm. All right. That took a turn that I should have checked. Yeah, it really feels like he was taking advantage of, uh, uh, advantage of her. Soon after, by chance, he bumped into Mac and reunited with the McSwans. Donald and Amy told Haig about their recent property investments, and Mac was working for them by collecting rents from their London properties. This is a picture of Amy, Amy McSwan. That is an adorable photo. She's adorable. She looks very happy. Like, this looks like I'm going to Disneyland for the first time pose. You know what I mean? Like, out in front of the that mm-hmm. garden that they have. And she's, she's like, half sitting on this, like, garden fence, and she's got Mary Jane's on Mm -hmm. and a skirt. I love her hat. They're called, like, cloaches or or cloaks. C-L-O-C-A-G. I don't know. That's a Felix question. That is a Felix. Felix, how do you pronounce that? Thanks. (laughs) She's got a nice little cardigan and, like, the shirt. Uh, underneath, or the blouse underneath has like a necktie, and she's got her, her little hand purse. She looks adorable. She's adorable. She's got such a big smile on her face. She's so happy. But uh, Hig was jealous of the seemingly lavish lifestyle and little effort that seemed to go into collecting rents because Hig is a con artist above all things. On September 6th, 1944, Mac suddenly disappeared. Hegg told Donald and Amy that he was hiding in Scotland to dodge the draft. Mac had already talked about going underground instead of serving, so this seemed credible. Hegg managed to keep up the charade by sending the McSwans letters supposedly from, from Mac. He took over Mac's house and began collecting the rents for Donald and Amy. As the war wound down and the draft was over, the McSwans started to wonder why Mac hadn't come back yet. On July 2nd, 1945, Haig said Mac had come back for a surprise visit and lured them to a basement on Gloucester Road in London. Haig lured them to this basement. Mm-hmm. He then murdered them by hitting them over the head the same way he had killed Mac. He then disposed of them the same way as Mac by putting their bodies into 40-gallon drums and adding sulfuric acid. 
few days later, he returned to find the bodies had become about 100 pounds of sludge each, and he poured them down a drain in the basement. Wouldn't that acid eat up the drains? So the drain itself is also referred to as a manhole. Oh, so he was just dumping it, like, into... The sewer. Okay, like, straight into the sewer. Okay. Yeah. It, it wasn't, like, a bathtub drain. What a get-up. Yeah. Hag informed the McSwan's landlady that they had gone to America, and then he went through the family files to be prepared to answer any questions about them. He had all of their mail forwarded to him, including pension checks. Hag forged Mac's signature on a power of attorney form, and he forged deeds, and he sold their properties, stealing about 8,000 pounds, which in uh, today's American money is about $489,000. He then moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. The McSwans were never reported missing, and police were unaware of them until Haig confessed in 1949. Wow! Because it was just three of them. Wowie, wee wow. Mm-hmm. People, the landlady just thought they were in America. Okay. Yeah. By 1947... So that happened in 1945. Mm-hmm. Two years later, 1947, Haig was short on money because he was a gambler. He feigned interest in a house that Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose were selling. And this is Dr. Archibald Henderson and Rose. Wow. First of all, <laughs> that woman is a movie star. She definitely looks like she could be a movie star. Holy cow. And that, he's, is he decorated or just, is it just one badge on there? Um, he's got, yeah, there's one or two. Okay. Even so, though, he obviously was in the military and served at some point. Mm -hmm. She is just drop-dead gorgeous for this time period. She has literally everything that would have been in style for this time period. Her eyebrows are on point. Her makeup is on point. Her hair is perfect. Her hair, like, kills me. Perfect. And this is... Both of these are such glamour shots. They really are very, very good photos. Even his photo is something that it reminds me of... It looks like it would be a prop in a movie. Yes. A promotional still. Yeah. So they were they were selling a house. Haig offered more money for the house than they were asking, but the deal fell through when he couldn't come up with the money because he was never planning on buying it anyways. He continued, though, to cultivate a relationship with them based on a shared love of music because he played piano. That was, like, his only thing he was really allowed to do. Yeah. And they loved piano as well. Or music. The Hendersons generally weren't the type of people he would approve of. They lived expensively, they drank, they were worldly, and Rose had already been married and divorced. That's literally him. I, I know. He, he's over here, like, murdering people, and he doesn't approve of their well, lifestyle. He went through 8,000 pounds in two years. Mm-hmm. Like, who's living lavishly? Let's not throw stones in glass well, that's houses. That's what I'm saying, man. <laughs> but that, I mean, we see that with with murderers and with like offenders like this, though, mm-hmm. where they're just like, I don't approve of their lifestyle. But if you like look at it from far away, like it's like you're the one like 
killing the sex workers. Yeah, I'm wondering um, what that would be classified under. Like, would that be a narcissistic behavior? Would it be borderline behavior? Like, what... I want to know what classification that would be under, where it's okay for you to do these horrendous things, but it's not okay for them to do something that's not really bad. You just don't agree with it morally. Yeah. Haig encouraged them to reveal information about their properties, and at some point, Haig stole Archibald's revolver. I read somewhere that it was during the open house when they were trying to sell their house and he went in, but I only read that in, like, one place, so who knows. At some point, though, he did steal Archibald's revolver. In February 1948, he took Archibald from the Metropole Hotel, where the Hendersons were living, to his workshop on Leopold Street in Sussex, so he had moved places, under the pretext of showing him an invention. When they arrived, Haig shot Archibald in the head with the stolen revolver. Haig then called Rose to the workshop, saying Archibald had fallen ill. He shot her as well, then trussed up and disposed of their bodies in acid. Haig forged letters by Rose, copying her handwriting and signature, and writing 15 pages to her brother, Arnold Berlin. He, he felt so confident in his forgery skills that he wrote 15 letters to her brother. Amazing. Or 15 pages of a letter to her brother. So, narcissistic. We got that one. Mm-hmm. So, he then paid their hotel bill and sold all of their possessions for about 8,000 pounds, which two years later is apparently worth $412,000, except for their car and their dog, which he kept. The dog was an Irish setter. How's the dog's okay? This is the only time I hear about the dog, it's just that he kept the dog. He also kept some of Rose's clothes, which he gave to his girlfriend, Barbara. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> the child. The child. Rose's brother, Arnold, was worried and prepared to go to the police, but Haig managed to convince him that the Hendersons had gone to South Africa because Archibald, a doctor, had carried out an illegal abortion and that they had fled. Oh. And this is the workshop in Sussex. Which, why anyone would go there, I do not know. It's such a small little building. It, it looks to be a small little building, yeah, and it could just be that the it's black and white, uh, a black and white photo, but, like, it looks creepy. It looks shabby. Grungy. Grungy, yes. I mean, if somebody was like, hey, come into this building, I'd be like, hey, no. That's where I would get murdered. <laughs> I mean, maybe for the time period, though, maybe it wasn't, Sure. you know. Maybe, it, and maybe it's a perfectly acceptable workshop for the time frame. And it's a workshop, too. It's not, like, a home. That's true. Workshops are usually a little bit more... Yeah, that's true. In June 1948, Haig claimed that his car was stolen, but it was soon found smashed at the foot of a cliff. Less than a month later, an unidentified body was found nearby. However, police decided that the incidents were unrelated. Even after his later arrest, spoiler alert, Haig gets arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Haig denied having anything to do with the body. What's interesting about that is he... Has no issues confessing to other things. Spoiler alert, he confesses to things. Um, he has no issues confessing to other things, but he adamantly is like, that body I had nothing to do with. Well, and I'm going to be honest, it doesn't go with his MO of, like, melting them in acid. So, I honestly believe that. Yeah. So. It's interesting, though. As far as the car, though, 
Was it his car? It was his car. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he was like, oh, yeah, my car is stolen. And then it was smashed at the foot of a cliff. He said he didn't have anything to do with body. Haig told Barbara that he wanted to collect the insurance, and he even took her to the spot where the car had crashed. And he very not suspiciously told her not to mention it to anyone. People had heard him say that he was tired of the car and wish someone would steal it, and soon enough he used the insurance money to purchase a new one. He claimed that he didn't crash his own car, but he totally crashed his own car. He totally crashed his own car. You can't go around talking about how you want to commit a crime and then commit the crime and be like, no, I would never commit that crime. That makes no fucking sense, bro. Yeah. It's just ironic that, like, here's a random body next to the car. Yeah, that part's weird. Yeah. It just happens to, like, probably not be one of your bodies. Yeah, one of. Fuck. Go on. Haig had a neighbor at the Onslow Court Hotel named Olive Duran Deacon, who was the 68-year-old wealthy widow of a war hero. This is Olive. I kind of love her. I love the name Olive, though. Her actual name is, like, five names long, and it's, like, Olivia something 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 Olive something Duran Deacon or whatever, and they they called her Olive, so I'm just going to stick with Olive. I like the name Olive. I don't know what it is about her. She's very captivating to me it looks like she's looking directly at the camera which i don't think was a really big thing back then i think they always had them like look off to the side like oh also like i'm sitting over here and it looks like she's looking at me oh okay does it look like she's looking at you yeah it looks like she's looking at me so she managed to uh nail that she had been a suffragette in her younger years and had spent a night in jail for throwing a brick through a window hell yeah olive and i i really see that in this photo (laughs) Like, she looks kind of scary, but in the, like, I want her on my team, in a way. <laughs> and she's got these pearls, and this black coat, and this black hat, and, like, she her hair like is done, and... She looks like she would have been on the Titanic. Yes. She looks like the unsinkable Molly Brown. Fuck. But, yeah, you can, you can see, like, she was a suffragette. She, like, she was ready for it. I can see her throwing a brick through a window. So Haig was claiming to be an engineer, and Olive was inventing things. She showed Haig some artificial fingernails that she had designed and wanted to produce and patent, and asked if he could improve on the idea and make a marketable product. Alright, I'll get it. Right. I don't know if artificial fingernails were a thing at that time, or if she was just like, this is my idea now. I don't know. Either way, though, like... She's an older woman, she's a widow, and she's like, uh, I'm gonna do shit still. Like, yeah. I like that. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's great. Uh, she's a wealthy widow, too. Like, she yeah. didn't have to. No, she's well off, yeah. And she's like, I'm gonna keep my brain going. So, he invited her to his workshop on February 18th, 1949, to look at blueprints. And when she arrived, he shot her in the back of the neck with a revolver. <gasps> yeah. Olive. I know. Heg then stripped her of her valuables including a Persian lamb coat, which I think is this coat that she's wearing in this photo. It looks really comfy, whatever it is. It looks really soft. He put on a rubber apron, gloves, wellies, and a gas mask, and put her in the acid bath. When he was finished, he returned to Onslow Court and had a three-course dinner. The next day, when asked by other residents of the hotel if he knew where she was, Haig said that they'd arranged to meet at the Army-Navy store, but she didn't show up. Meanwhile, Rose Henderson's brother was once again insisting that the police locate her due to their mother being deathly ill. Haig decided to kill Arnold Berlin as well and offered to let Arnold stay with him when he came to London. 
but that never happened. I will never visit it. Mm. Two days after he killed Olive, Hig asked Constance Lane, her friend, if she'd heard from Olive. So he went up to Constance and was like, hey, uh, do you know where she is? What's going on? Constance hadn't and was going to go to the police that afternoon to report Olive missing. Hig drove her to the station and gave them a statement about the missed appointment at the Army Navy store. A photo and description of Olive was issued to police departments, press, and hotel personnel. A policewoman, Sergeant Lamborn, was assigned to take interviews at the hotel and became suspicious of Haig. The hotel manager gave an uncomplimentary description of him and offered up a record of his debts to the hotel, and Lamborn thought Haig was being really slick with his responses to the questions. She also found it suspicious that a middle-aged man lived in a hotel with a bunch of wealthy older women. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that she's wrong. However, what if he was just a male prostitute? You know? I mean, valid option. They say that when you get older like that, your libido comes back full swing. (laughs) They have a problem with STDs in retirement homes. It's true. Well, the police ran a background check and discovered Higgs' criminal record. Uh Aha. Meanwhile, Higgs' apparent concern when he answered questions, as well as the fact that he was handsome, had a polished manner and was stylish, made a good impression on reporters. Mm. Because reporters are now flocking, like, where is this Where is this woman? Mm. One news report brought forward a man named Mr. Bull to report that the day after Olive was reported missing, jewelry had been brought into his shop to be pawned. An inspector collected the jewelry, and Olive's relative identified it as hers. The seller signed J. McLean, but Mr. Bull's assistant recognized Hegg from previous visits when he had pawned jewelry and used his real name. You dumb bitch. <laughs> it's the same thing I thought. Police searched Hegg's workshop on February 26th and found his attache case, which contained a dry cleaner's receipt for a black Persian lamb coat, as well as papers referring to the Hendersons and the McSwans, a marriage certificate, several passports, ID cards, and driver's license licenses. In a men's hat box was a recently fired revolver. They found several 40-gallon drums, carboys, which are narrow-neck 10-gallon glass bottles used for acid, a stirrup pump, which I looked it up, and it's like this um, big bottle, and it literally has, like, it looks like a stirrup, and you put your foot in it, and the top looks like a air pump. Mm-hmm. And it's got a hose, and that way you can move liquid from, like, one container to another without having to pour it. Okay. Convenient for acid. Yeah, you don't have to do that suction thing on the hose where you start to suck and then... <sighs> yeah. So they found the stirrup pump, rubber gloves, a Macintosh, which is, like, this big coat, mm-hmm. a gas mask, and a rubber, ap- a rubber apron splattered with acid. Good thing he's wearing an apron. And here, I have a photo for you. Oh. We have... Is it in a museum? Mm-hmm. I think so. I don't remember exactly where I got this photo from. But it's in color. It, yeah, probably. But we've got ourselves a 40-gallon drum. We've got... Here, let me turn it. I keep forgetting. Uh, the gas mask. The gloves. The gloves. <clears throat> this is a bag. Um, like a gas canvas ma- bag? Yeah, it's like the gas mask bag. Oh, Okay. And then, 
here's the rubber apron splattered with acid. Wow. There was also a pair of rubber boots and rubber gloves, which we saw, and an army bag with a gas mask inside. Okay, army. And that's what that was. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. He was uh, prepared. Oh, there's somebody in the getup. Yeah. This is actually a police officer, but um, he's wearing the the getup. Oh, my God. I would never be able to put that on. That man must have had nightmares. Like, could, I just can't imagine putting on clothes that, at that point, they assumed were used to murder people. Like, I could not. Yeah, there's a police officer wearing this whole getup. So he's got this Macintosh, which is this big trench coat. Over top of that, he's got this big rubber apron. He's got these rubber gloves on. And then on top of all of that is this canvas bag and the gas mask. And it's a really freaky photo. This is also the photo that um, is the photo they use on Netflix for murder maps. So on February 28th, Detective Inspector Albert Webb was waiting at Onslow Court for Hegg to come home and took him to the station to, quote, assist them with their inquiries. Hegg had a detached air and smoked, read the paper, and napped. It was almost three hours later when they started to question him. Rose Henderson's brother had finally reported that Hegg had been the last person to see her. Hegg initially tried to lie and create some blackmail story, but eventually said about Olive, quote, I've destroyed her with acid. You'll find the sludge that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace has gone. He made a confession and signed it. Wow. Yeah. Just like me. Afterward, he asked Webb, quote, Tell me frankly, what are the chances of anybody being released from Broadmoor, which was a high-security psychiatric prison? Webb said he couldn't discuss that, and he wasn't going to. <clears throat> Hegg then decided to go full crazy pants and said, quote, Well, if I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. He was cautioned not to speak, but still dictated a statement that took two and a half hours to write. He said that after he shot Olive, he took a penknife and glass from his car and drank her blood. <laughs> okay what the fuck that caught me so off guard <laughs> so off guard holy shit surprise oh yeah he <laughs> he even said that he had time for a cup of tea and a fried egg on toast at a cafe between killing olive and putting her in the acid bath Hag then shush Hegg then confessed to killing the McSwans, the Hendersons, and three others, a young man called Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. However, these last three could not be substantiated. Hegg described in his confession how when the first body was fully submerged, which would have been Mac, the fumes overwhelmed him and he had to go outside. However, knowing that he had killed someone and removed all traces of them made him feel euphoric. Since the acid made it difficult to breathe, he made a tin mask to protect his face and had a bathtub specially made of steel and painted it with several more layers to make it resistant to corrosion. He bought a stirrup pump to get the acid from the carboy container into the tub. Haig seemed to have no remorse and enjoyed recounting his crimes, which were then published in newspapers. Oh my god. Yeah. I can't... I always try and find a way to relate to people. I don't know what that is about me, but I cannot relate at all to that. Like, that is 
having no remorse for doing something and in addition to that feeling good that you literally erase them from the face of the earth like that's who hmm. holy shit okay yeah on march 1st police examined the workshop unlike higgs first workshop this one didn't have a floor drain so he disposed of the remains by pouring the drums out on a rubble pile at the back of the property the depth was three to four inches covering an area of four to six feet the pathologist found fragments of olive's left foot which when reconstructed fully fit one of her shoes perfectly Uh, pieces of pelvic bone two discs from her lower spine a handbag a lipstick container and a hairpin Oh my god. They also found 28 pounds of human body fat, human gallstones, and part of a denture, which Olive's dentist later verified were hers. Oh my god. Technicians had to wear rubber gloves and cover their arms in Vaseline to protect themselves from the acid. Sulfuric acid didn't work on plastic like on human tissue, so if Haig had been arrested later or had waited to confess, the forensic team would have had less success finding evidence. Well... There's a silver lining, I guess. Inside the building, they found Haig's journal with a cross drawn in red under September 9. There's always a journal. There's always a journal. Indicating the day he either killed or disposed of Mac. The entry for February 12 had two crosses next to the Henderson's initials. There was also fine blood spatter on the wall that was photographed and scraped for analysis. And there's a couple photos here. This first one is cut off, but it's investigators digging through stuff. Mm. And the second one is a policewoman cataloging evidence. There's a wagon there. There's, are those drawers or boxes? These are boxes. And um, there's a lot of stuff there. There's like, Is that a hand or is that another person? That's another person back there. Yeah, yeah, that's another Ooh, person. okay. <laughs> I was like, there's just a whole ass hand over there. In March 1949, the editor of the Daily Mirror was jailed for three months, and the newspaper's publishers fined 10,000 pounds, which is about $498,408, for contempt of court for its early reports of the court proceedings. They had begun to run a series of stories with the headline, Hunt for the Vampire, and Haig's legal advisors issued a complaint. Although they didn't name him directly, it was common knowledge that they were referring to Haig, it was illegal to publish sensitive material about a crime before the trial, and the concern was that the reports and photos could have prejudiced Haig's defense. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Haig was charged with murder. On July 18, 1949, 4,000 people crowded into the small town of Lewis, Lewis, British people who listen to us, uh, help me out, trying to get a seat in the court, but most did not. And here is a photo of that. All these people trying. Yeah. That's a lot of people. It was very, very popular. This this is a street lined with people. Haig had no money to pay for his defense. So the News of the World newspaper made a deal to pay for his counsel in exchange for an exclusive. Haig was confident and bantered during the proceedings. Attorney General Sir Hartley Shawcross led the prosecution and urged the jury to reject the insanity defense. 
He called 33 witnesses to prove premeditation of murder for gain and laid out the case chronologically to prove that Haig did not act as someone with diminished responsibility. The defense was led by Sir David Maxwell Fife. Haig pled insanity, claiming to have drunk a cup of the blood of his victims, though there's no evidence that he actually consumed human blood. He did once drink his own urine while in his cell to try to sell the act. Stop. Oh my god. And and that's the thing. It's and I get into this here in a second, but it it seems to be especially when he was like he confessed and then was like, "Oh, um how how do you think I could get out of Broadmoor?" And the detective was like, "Nah, bro." And he's just like, oh, okay, um, I drank their blood. Now can I go to perform? Yeah, oh my god. Haig said that he had dreams featuring blood as a young boy, and when he was in a car accident in March 1944, the dreams came back. Haig was examined by several doctors, and not one gave the opinion that Haig was not responsible for his actions. Usually the compulsion of blood drinking is part of a sexual deviation, but Haig had little interest in sex. Most of the doctors agreed that while he had mental health issues, Haig was not, quote, insane. Dr. Henry Yellow Lees diagnosed him with a paranoid personality due to his upbringing, which blurred the lines between fantasy and reality. Okay. What Yellow Lees didn't know was that Haig had been buddies years before with an employee of a Sussex psychiatric hospital. Mm. And over the years had gathered a lot of information about mental illness. He knew about behavioral patterns, traits, and habits of various disorders. Yellow Lee's testimony was limited to describing the illness since he did not commit to a position on Haig's actual thinking at the time of the murder. Because of this, on cross-examination, Yellow Lee's was forced to admit that Haig seemed to know that what he was doing was wrong by law since he attempted to cover up his crimes. Haig had envisioned a stint in a mental institution, then regaining his freedom to prey on people. Just like we were talking about. But during the trial, it became apparent that Haig used acid to destroy the bodies because he mistakenly believed that if there were no bodies, then a murder conviction wouldn't be possible. If there's no bodies, there's no crime, is what he thought. Of course, beside, despite the lack of bodies, there was plenty of forensic evidence. Even for that time period. Even for that time period. Through the trial, Haig did a crossword puzzle and didn't speak on his own behalf. He paid little attention until the two sides made their closing speeches. It took between 15 minutes and half an hour, depending on the source, for the jury to find Haig guilty, and Justice Travers Humphreys sentenced him to death. When the judge asked if he had anything to say for himself, Haig cocked his head and said, nothing at all. You cocky son of a bitch. This is a picture of him going into court. You can see he is handcuffed to... Is he laughing? It looks like it. He's handcuffed to an officer. He's smiling. This other officer uh, is... smiling. Smiling at him. What is happening here? Yeah. Um... Oh. I've never seen such a happy... What the fuck? I don't have words. Move on. Okay. <clears throat> Haig's girlfriend, Barbara, had been with him for five years. The child? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, shit. He had compartmentalized his life so much that she had no idea that he was a serial killer. She visited him while he was in prison, trying to understand, and expected to find a man who stood falsely accused. Instead, he was reveling in the attention and confessing. She realized that he admitted he loved her the same week he killed Mac. They spent a wonderful day together two days after he disposed of Mac's parents. They talked about marriage while he disposed of the Hendersons. And the day after Olive died, they had a very pleasant tea. Oh my god. Even so, she wrote him letters. She She visited him once a week. And for his 40th birthday, she sent him a good luck charm. Oh my god. When Barbara asked if he intended to kill her, he said he never entertained the idea and seemed genuine. Later in life, she said that if she'd found him out, then he probably would have killed her as well. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Literally anybody who questioned him, he just killed him. Uh, oh my god. This is a, a letter that he wrote her. In it, he thanks her for coming to see him and says it was so that it grieves him that it was so shocking for her and I suppose no one knows better than you how difficult it is to upset my calm I can assure you that irrespective of superficial appearances I was very badly shaken and he talks about how she was in agony and he couldn't do anything about it because there was glass in between them and yeah, keep playing the game. Uh, he could, if only he could have met her normally. Bitch, you could have met her normally. You did not have to be a serial killer. You chose this. Uh, the yeah. fuck? Normally, I would have left no doubt in your mind as to whether the last five years have meant anything to me or not. Surely you must know that I have loved you intensely during that time. So she apparently straight up was like, have you even ever loved me? How foolish of you to ask why I hadn't murdered you. Of course I had millions of opportunities, I know that. But the idea never even crossed my mind. I wouldn't have hurt a hair on your head. Nobody's. Nobody's falling for that. Nobody's falling for that. It's like, of course I had a million opportunities. You killed your best friend. Nobody is falling for that. Get the fuck out. And then he writes a whole bunch of sentences about... uh, The other business is something entirely separate. Uh, There was no affection involved and the people I killed, the papers are talking about six widows, but they don't know the whole story. There were men, and I don't know how many there were, maybe a dozen. That is so rude. And he goes on further to say, like, uh, it wasn't their money, but their blood I wanted, and uh, you were really perceptive yesterday. I'm it's, sorry. It's It's all... You're telling me it wasn't their money, but you immediately went out and pawned this bitch's fucking jewelry. You went through 8,000 pounds in two years, twice. Yeah. It's it's very self-centered. Even his flattery of her is self-serving. Mm. And it's one of those things where you, you know that your letter is going to be read before it goes out. And so he's setting himself up with, like... Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't their money. It was their blood. But also, like, you're sending this to your girlfriend. She's going to read this. I don't know. It's... It's very self-serving. The whole thing is. But, like... All right. Sure. 
John Haig spent his last days just being really heckin' weird. <laughs> As if this wasn't weird enough. He asked if it would be possible to have a trial run of his hanging and to meet the hangman to make sure that they had his weight right. He was concerned that his sprightly walk made it look like he weighed less and that this should be worked into the calculations of the gallows drop. Your face. Sure, bud. The fuck? Uh, yeah, that was denied. Yeah. They were like, no, 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 guy, we, we've got this. No you're worries. gonna die. It's fine. You might s- sit there for a minute, but you'll die. Yeah, they were like, no, nah, bro. We... He wanted that broken neck so he didn't have to suffer. I don't know what he wanted. Uh, he was asked if he wanted a brandy and replied, make it a large one, old boy. Oh my god. 100% Gatsby. Yes, it, it's a very Gatsby thing. Thank you. He would have his barber come cut his hair, and he took visitors up until he had to start wearing prison clothes. He finished giving his exclusive to the News of the World and received greetings from his mother through a reporter. He wrote letters to his parents and Barbara and told her that he believed in reincarnation and he would return to complete his mission. Uh. I don't know what his mission was. I don't know, but it involved acid and murdering people, so I'm not here for it. The fuck? Why is... Why? Why? Uh-uh. No. Oh, man. Madame Tussauds came to his cell the day before his execution, and they took three hours to make a death mask for the wax model they put up the day after his death. The model wore clothing picked out and donated by Haig with the stipulation that his wax work always be kept spotless, with trousers neatly creased, shirt cuffs showing, and hair parted. Would you like to see his wax work? I mean, yeah, but what the fuck? You don't really have a choice, but... Honestly, that looks better than the picture. I'm way less scared of this than I was that picture of him. Yeah. He looks like Walt Disney, though. Okay. Which is also terrifying. So, he looks like this weird cross between Walt Disney and Hitler. Yeah. My, my brain kind of glitches out when I see it. Yeah. The face definitely looks softer than the other one, which is oh, why yeah. I think it makes me think of Walt Disney. But, I mean, that he Hitler's was also anti-Semitic, so it's well done. Yeah. It's very well done. Yeah. But how are you going to put stipulations on something like that? Like, first of all, you murdered people and melted their bodies with acid. Secondly, you're going to be dead, bro. <sighs> yeah. Nobody has to keep up with that. Like I said, he was super weird. Um, he was very charismatic, as we said. The police liked him. The, wh- <clears throat> Maybe that explains why they were all smiley while he was <laughs> being What hank. the fuck? The, oh my god. Alright. The, the chaplain who went to pray with him before his execution spoke affectionately about him. He was hanged on August 10th, 1949. I just, I can't. The police liked him. What the fuck? The chaplain? Like, guys. Murderer. Get better fucking heroes. I swear to fucking God. <laughs> John Haig managed to stay in the public eye. He was part of a special exhibit at the Museum of London where a collection of relics were opened to the public from New Scotland Yard's Black Museum. The gloves and apron he used to protect himself from burns from the acid, olives, gallstones, and dentures, and the stolen revolver were on display. The door, the cell door from his incarceration at Horsham Police Station is now preserved in Horsham Museum. 
I'm sorry. They kept this woman's gallstones? Yes. I didn't include that photo, but it is available to, to be found. I thought that was a little weird, and also they just look like pebbles. Why would you... Okay. It was evidence. And actually, well, a big reason was the pathologist, anybody else walking around looking at it would have been like, oh, those are some rocks. But the pathologist walking by looked down and was like, oh, those are gallstones. Like, that, that is a body. We need that. No, like, I understand that, but like... So I guess it's because it's kind of a big deal. Okay. So, obviously, this, this case was solved. The murderer was brought to justice, though he... Seemed to have done most of it, uh, kind of in his own time, in his own way. With yeah, his own I'm stipulations. Uh, That's the Asabath murder. Yeah, sure was. <laughs> sure was. I confused that person with somebody else very obviously because that was not where I thought that was going. And there's so much more that I left out. I just I had to leave out. I mean, he gets like that sometimes, though. Yeah. The audacity of this man. <laughs> is just blinding. It's it's crazy to me how many stipulations he had and how he thought he was just going to keep murdering anybody who questioned him. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. That's... It, it wasn't that he was murdering people who questioned him. It was like, I'm going to get in good with you and learn about your properties and your money and then I'm going to kill you and take them. Yes, but anytime somebody started to suspect him and questioned him, mm-hmm. they were then included in his I'm gonna kill you thing, like Arnold too. Like yeah, if yeah, Arnold yeah. had come to stay with him, he would have one hundred percent killed him. Oh yeah, that was fully his plan. Uh Arnold was very annoying to him. Yeah. So I just I don't know. Um that's hard for me to follow because that's not a solution to your problem. You're just making more problems for later on. Mm-hmm. But I guess that was future his his problem. Yeah. That was <laughs> quite the ride. Yeah. So. The part that got me when I was watching Murder Maps was the, like, I'm going to confess because there's no body and I can't be charged. And it's like, nope, that's not how that works. You confessed. That's that's all we need. And, he, is... he's, and then he's just like, oh, um, well, I'm crazy. Yeah. And they're just like, okay, buddy. Yeah. Uh, I know that now in the United States, it is hard to get a murder charge without a body. Mm-hmm. But when you confess to doing it, I don't think that's really going to fucking matter, bud. Mm-hmm. And it's not even that they didn't have a body. They had parts of bodies. There was, yeah, they had parts of bodies. There was a part of a pelvis and a spine foot, yeah. and a foot and gallstones and dentures. and That was... Quite the adventure, and uh, thanks for welcoming welcoming us back with <laughs> such a great <laughs> fuck. I don't have words. Oh man. Oh boy. Yeah. It was easier to listen to than Dodd, though. Yeah. Dodd was a lot harder. Thanks for listening to Murder Bombs. Be sure to like us, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon, where you'll get exclusives like outtakes, discount codes for merch, and bloopers. Subscribe to our newsletter to see the photos we discuss in the episode, our sources, links to merch, and other bonuses. Submit questions, comments, and corrections to murdermomspodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also just drop a line to say hi. Thanks again, and we'll see you in two weeks.